Well, beloved, it's time to turn our attention to God's Word. If you have your Bibles, um, break them out and look with me in Genesis chapter 4. Let me offer a quick word of prayer as you turn there. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear from you in your Word. Speak to us about our lives and about our world. We want to have a divine encounter with you. So we pray, pour out your spirit upon us everywhere that we are. and Fill us with your spirit and Holy Spirit. Illumine our minds to understand the word and point us to Christ. And Lord Jesus, reveal to us the Father, we pray. Be with us in, in power. Guide us in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's blood in the streets of America. A lot of blood. Anytime there's blood in the streets, that means a body has been killed. Truthfully, a lot of bodies have been killed, and a lot of blood is flowing in the streets. It's been so for a long time. I don't have the time to recount the horror of over 10 million African bodies uh, transported in the transatlantic slave trade to the New World. Bodies exploited and beaten, maimed, and killed. I don't have the time to count the number of black bodies that were lost in lynching and racial violence in the hundred years or so of Jim Crow segregation in this country. And who can calculate the impact of drugs imported into our community and the impact of mass incarceration that has blood flowing in the back alleys and the main streets of our cities? Today we hashtag names of persons unjustly killed in this country, sometimes by crazed citizens, Sometimes by wanton police officers. We say their names, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Tatiana Jefferson, and a whole list of others. The killing keeps happening. The blood keeps flowing. And so we need a theological and a missional response to it. Because the truth of the matter is that the Bible itself is unblushing in its discussion about blood, about the blood that flows and the God who sees it. So that's what I want us to consider this morning. I want us to address the theology of the black body, blood, and justice. We do that from Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 to 16. Three points here. Number one, we'll notice that the blood cries out. Number two, the brothers sell out. And number three, God speaks out. The blood cries out, the brothers sell out, and God speaks out. Look with me in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and away from your face. I, I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Blood cries out. Many of you already know the story of Cain and Abel, two brothers, the first two brothers in the history of the world, born to Adam and Eve. Uh, they had different vocations. They both worshipped God. They both made offerings. And God was pleased with Abel's offering because Abel gave God the better portion. He was displeased with Cain's offering. When we pick up the story here in verse 8. Cain knows that God is displeased with him. Cain knows that uh, God did not like the offering. And uh, Cain's solution to his problem with his God was to murder his brother. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This is the Bible's first recorded murder. Blood has been flowing in the streets of the world ever since. Now, this isn't just the first murder. It's a brother killing a brother. It violates not only human decency, but violates the requirements of family and love. This is the worst kind of murder. It is the kind of murder that exploits the presumption of loyalty and safety and trust. It's an ambush. Beloved, that's what's happening in the case of Breonna Taylor. In the service of a no-knock warrant, she was ambushed in her own bed, sleeping. That's what happened in the case of George Floyd. They were, he was ambushed. Other image bearers, other brothers and sisters in Adam who were charged to um, dispense justice and protection and safety abused that authority and ambushed him. And that's, beloved, what's happened with the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Men and women made in the image of God, stalking and murdering another man made in the image of God. Ambushed by neighbors who did not understand neighbor love. Blood flows in the streets. But I want you to see something. God hears the blood of the murdered. Look with me at verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Several times in this sermon series, I've made the point that the body prophesies. The body speaks. The body talks. Here, a part of the body, blood, is personified. Blood here speaks. It has a voice, and it cries to God when it is unjustly shed. Y'all better know something. Blood spilt unrighteously cries into the very ears of an all-powerful God. God hears it. God does not stop up his ears to the, to the blood that spilt in the street. God listen to it, listens to it. He doesn't turn away. 
So God hears the blood of George Floyd. God hears the blood of Breonna Taylor. God hears the blood of Ahmaud Arbery. God hears the blood of Atatiana Jefferson. God hears the blood of Ayanna Stanley Jones. God hears the blood of Alton Sterling. God hears the blood of Charlena Lyles. God hears the blood of Walter Scott. God hears the blood of the Charleston Nine. God hears the blood of Sandra Bland. God hears the blood of Scott Bell. God hears the blood of Trayvon Martin. God hears the blood of Tamir Rice. God hears the blood of Eric Garner. God hears the blood of Freddie Gray. The blood of black bodies. Black men and women, boys and girls, cries out to God, and God hears. With all the blood spilled in America, this country is storing up wrath for the day of wrath. I know that sometimes it seems like our cries are feeble, that the prayers of survivors are weak and ineffective. I know that sometimes we can feel like our Prayers are not heard. We lament how long, O Lord. But know this. Even before we began to pray, even before we knew the names of those who have fallen victim, even before we began to grow tired and weary of praying and crying out to God, God had already heard the blood of the slain crying out to him from the streets, from bedrooms from living rooms, from the aisle in Walmart, from all the various places where um, blood has been spilled unrighteously. It cries to God and God hears. Won't you see a second thing? I want you to observe how Cain acts in all of this. He's acting out. We know that already. We know that because he killed his brother and I'm tempted to say you can't act out much more than that, than killing your brother. But the truth of the matter is, if you stunt on your brother like that, you'll stunt even to the face of God. Notice in verse 9, God comes to Cain with two questions. He says, where's your brother and what have you done? And Cain's responses is a case study in how not to pursue justice. It's a case study in how to respond badly when we've been acting out badly. Cain's response shows us how we should not, in the current injustice of our day, act out. We see three reactions. Number one, Cain reacts or acts indifferent. In response to God's question, where is your brother? Cain replies, I don't know. In other words, he can't be bothered to keep up with Abel. doesn't matter where Abel is to Cain. And it's not that he doesn't really know where Abel is. I mean, he's just killed the man. He know where he left the body. He know where he did his deed. He at least knows where he attacked him. But he's acting like he doesn't care. He's acting like the whereabouts of his brother is of no importance to him. He, he can't be bothered. He's indifferent to Abel's suffering and death. I want you to understand something, beloved. We learned it from the Jewish Holocaust survivor and writer, Eli Weissel. He taught this so well. He says, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. Weissel went on to say, 
indifference to me is the epitome of evil. That's what we see with Cain in verse 4. Cain's evil indifference to his brother's death. And that's what we've seen throughout the history of this country down to this day when it comes to the death of his black and brown brothers and sisters. Evil indifference. The indifference we're talking about lands on the black body and ends in the shedding of black blood. John Hissy Coates is a brilliant writer. I don't agree with his recommendations where he makes them in terms of answers to our problems, but he sees with searing clarity often the problem itself and describes it so well for us. Puts it nicely in between the world and me when he writes this. It's hard to face this, but all our phrasing Race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscles, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions, all land with great violence where? Upon the body. The black body. This is why indifference can no longer be the Christian response to what we're seeing in the world. This is why it can no longer be the country's response. It is a lovelessness. It is more than a hatred. It is, in the, in the words of Weisel, an evil, the epitome of evil, to be indifferent in the face of such suffering and injustice. Beloved, some, some issues force us to draw lines. One of those issues is whether or not the lives and the bodies and the blood of black people matter. We, we can't stand together on opposite sides of that line. right? I, your life matters to me. My life should matter to you. And, and if my life doesn't matter to you, we ain't on the same side of the line. We don't have solidarity at that level of basic fundamental principle that regards every human being as made in God's image and everybody a theological sign of God himself. We dare not continue to express indifference as to whether or not life and death matters and as to whether or not black life matters where black life is threatened most. Cain acted out. He acted indifferent. Number two, Cain acted out by acting unaccountable. Notice Cain's second reply there. He says, and I'm my brother's keeper. Imagine answering God's question with a question of your own. But it's a rhetorical question from a guilty conscience. He knows that the very word brother implies an obligation to look out for the other. He knows, but he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, and he hides behind an evasive rhetorical question. He's, he's suppressing the truth because he doesn't want to be held accountable. To admit that he is his brother's keeper is to admit that he is doubly wrong. First, in not protecting Abel as a brother should, but secondly, actually killing Abel as an enemy might. So it's often the strategy of those with a guilty conscience to act like they don't know what's going on. 
did it as a kid. I did it as a kid. Sneaking into the kitchen, hand in the cookie jar. Mama told you couldn't have no cookie before dinner. She coming in looking dead at you. What you doing? What you saying? Nothing. Denying the obvious. It's often the tactic of the wicked to deny the evidence of their misdeeds. We have clever ways of suppressing the truth. And this is true when it comes to the racial history of our country. We've got people here long practiced and skilled in seeking to be unaccountable by denying the evidence. Once again, Tanya Hissy quotes captures this well. He tells a story of a white woman in a New York high rise building. shoving his son out of the way and the the conflict that was occurring in that moment. And in this hypothetical letter to his son, this is what Coach says. He says, this is the import of the history all around us, though very few people like to think about it. Had I informed this woman that when she pushed my son, she was acting according to a tradition that held black bodies as lesser, her response would likely have been, I am not a racist. Or maybe not. But my experience in this world has been that the people who believe themselves to be white are obsessed with the politics of personal exoneration. There are not races in the world, or at least none, that the people who need to be white know personally. Here when Coach talks about the people who need to be white, he's not talking about skin color. He's talking about whiteness as an ideology, as a superstructure in this country. Uh, and, and the need of some people to participate in that fabricated identity uh, in order to enjoy the advantages of this country. And he says this now, this has been my experience, that, that among such people, there is this desire to exonerate themselves from racial injustice. And I have to say, that's not just Coach's experience, that's my experience too with, with white sons and daughters of Adam. Not all, but way too many. And certain fundamentalist Christians and evangelical Christians are the worst at this. That desire to exonerate themselves of all things racist, of all things racial injustice, it it tempts them to deny then all things that are racist. The result, again, is that they become indifferent to the black body and the blood of black people spilled in the streets, even when it's caught on camera. Even when the eye is telling you that an injustice has happened plainly, the heart of indifference must die with every person killed in their homes and every person choked to death on the streets and every little boy playing with a toy gun shot in the park. Indifference must die. Indifference cannot be in any legitimate way a Christian response to the kind of suffering and the kind of injustice we've been witnessing. Cain is indifferent. Cain is looking to escape accountability. Notice number three, Cain is also self-pitying. When God finds Cain guilty and and renders his judgment, which we'll look at in a moment, notice what, what Cain then says in response in verses 13 and 14. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Ain't that something? Did you get that? 
He just murdered his brother. And God now has given his judgment. And he's whining about his judgment. He's complaining. The punishment is too much. He wants a light sentence. He's whining that he's been driven from the face of God, but he wasn't living Coram Deo before the face of God. He's worried that someone might do to him what he has just finished doing to Abel. He's not repentant. He's self-pitying. Listen to me. If you listen to the conversations around racial injustice today, you will hear the voice of Cain. You will hear people who oppose racial injustice saying, the remedy is way greater than I can bear. How many times you hear that in a conversation about reparations? Oh, that's going to cost too much. You hear people say, we, we can't fix this problem or, or that problem because it's, it's too impractical. On and on it goes. Beloved, it's just the echo of Cain's voice. It's just the echo of a brother refusing to care for the murdered in the streets pitying himself, worried about his losses when he's standing knee-deep in blood-soaked ground. See, beloved, we, we cannot have the perpetrators of injustice centering themselves in conversations about the redress of injustice. We, we can't have the, the ones who perpetrate the crime sort of saying, oh, ah, no, that's too much. How about this? That's too much. No, no, no. They don't get to set those terms. We don't want anything in our heart that looks like a response like Cain's. So let me ask you, beloved, when you think about racial injustice in this country, is there anything in your heart that sounds like Cain's self-pitying in this text? Is there anything in your heart that is indifferent? Is there anything in your heart that's looking to avoid accountability, that, that wants to exonerate itself? Is there anything in you that pities yourself rather than the slain? So you need to repent, and I need to repent, and we need to seek and respond the way God responds. And that's what I want us to see here in our third point. God speaks out. The Father doesn't merely listen. The Father then speaks himself. And he speaks to say three things. First of all, God speaks out to strike the conscience. He speaks out to strike Abel's conscience. That's the purpose of the two questions that he asked Abel. It's not like God is looking for information. He doesn't know what happened. He, he saw it all. He, he knows it all. The questions are to get Cain to admit something that Cain doesn't want to admit. God asks, where is your brother? What have you done? He's trying to awaken the sinner's conscience. Trying to alert Cain to what is wrong with Cain's relationship with God and with his brother. This is the thing, beloved, until the conscience is aroused, the soul will sleep in sin. Till the conscience is pricked and made alive, the knowledge in right and wrong will, will lie smothered beneath, beneath the blanket of no-nothingness and indifference. People don't like to have their consciences bothered. You may like, like that happening to you even now this morning. 
As Romans 1 puts it, we tend to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We, we too often like to dull the conscience rather than keep it soft and alert. We like to turn it off when we are wrong, but, but a God-awakened conscience is really the path to relief and redemption. So the first thing God does is he speaks to strike Abel's conscience. And, beloved, our protest today must be aimed at arousing the conscience of a morally sleep country. Our protest must stimulate the knowledge of, of wrong and the knowledge of guilt. In fact, there can be no truly lasting change in the country until the conscience is changed, until people who did not believe certain things to be wrong come to see them as wrong, come to admit that wrong, and come to accept accountability for that wrong. The conscience must be stricken and made alive. That's our fight is to join God in this work, awakening and arousing the conscience. But notice now, God speaks up for a second reason. God speaks up to also give justice, to render justice, to, to announce his verdict. You see that in verses 11 and 12. Look there with me. God speaking, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no, no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. That's Cain's sentence for murder. It has two parts. Part one of his sentence is that the ground will resist his work. Now, Cain was a farmer. The ground was basically how he made his livelihood. Now, the ground that he has poured not seed into, but blood into, the ground is, the ground is choking on that blood, and the ground is refusing to, to sort of give up uh, the fruit of farming. Work's about to be hard for Cain. But there's a second part here uh, of God's judgment. Cain shall also be a wanderer, a fugitive on the earth. He's not going to have a home on the earth. He's, he's going to always be on the run. No place will be safe for him because he has shed blood with his hands. This here, this judgment is a picture of how inescapable God's justice is and, and how God's justice will come upon the sinner sometimes in the most central aspects of the sinner's life. This case, Cain's vocation. Here's the thing, beloved, as we see God judging Cain here. God's judgment to us may look delayed, but it is sure to come. It is sure to come. And when we look at the issues around police brutality and misconduct, we look at the issues around the criminal justice system, we can, we can get weary looking for justice. I mean, let me give you a few statistics. Going back to 2015. 2015, there were 104 cases where an unarmed black person was killed by police. Um, only 13 of those cases resulted in officers being charged with a crime. Four of these cases ended in a mistrial or charges against the officers being dropped. And, and at the time of this uh, writing, four cases were still awaiting trial. Um, only four cases at that time resulted in convictions of the officers involved with a fifth case, the case of Walter Scott, resulting in the officer pleading guilty. You look at those numbers, man, justice looks slow in coming. 
with 91 cases, saw no charges at all, and only five at that point resulted in, in conviction? Justice looks slow. But I'm so glad that God's justice is sure. Not one, no one, guilty of murder escapes the judgment and justice of God. God always does what is right. God always establishes justice. And he'll do it, beloved, um, particularly for those of you who are maybe sort of struggling with will God be just, he'll do it in one of three ways or maybe all three ways. First, God will give the murderer up to a reprobate mind. It's part of his judgment. So we see in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, the list of sins that long, one of them had to land on each of us. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. You see, sometimes, beloved, God's judgment begins with him just giving you over to your sin, to keep doing it, to be enslaved and dominated by it. That's part of his justice. Secondly, God may use government to bring justice. Look over in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. This is after the flood. Now God is speaking to Noah and his sons, and he says this, For your lifeblood I will require a, a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And we see here really the, the rudiments of human government. Men judging other men for wrongdoing, holding them accountable for murder, holding them accountable for the shedding of blood of people made in God's image. And so God uses government to bring the sword to promote justice. And this is why it's right for us to bring pressure upon government to make it do its job to bring justice in the case of the shedding of blood. But there's a third way that God gives justice, and, and nobody escapes this. If not saved by faith in Christ, God will condemn the unjust to the lake of fire. Revelation 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's Revelation's description of hell, the second death, a lake of fire, burning, sulfur. There go those who have escaped the justice of human judgment, perhaps. Perhaps they have not even considered that a reprobate mind is judgment. They will know on that day when a holy God opens the books and judges the lives of all people. Well, know that day that God's throne is established in justice. God will have his justice. This is why Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 5 says this. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. 
Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. God spoke to strike the conscience. God spoke to announce his justice against Cain. And number three, God spoke also to offer mercy. See that there in verses 15 and 16. Then the Lord said to him, not so. Remember Cain was saying, people are going to kill me. The Lord says, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is a remarkable picture of the mercy of God. Despite Cain being indifferent, despite Cain wanting to be unaccountable, despite Cain's self-pity, God shows him mercy. Cain suffers the consequences of his sin. He still has to work a ground that refuses him. He still has to wander the earth as a fugitive. But God spares Cain from suffering what he himself had inflicted on Abel. He, he, he spares Cain from other people heaping more abuse on him. That's mercy. That's mercy. It's interesting here. You allow me a little bit of a historical aside, this idea of the mark of Cain. The word mark there could be translated sign or warning or omen. It's the same word that's used to refer to the stars in Genesis 1.14. It's used to refer to the rainbow after the flood in Genesis 9.12. It's the word that's used to refer to the, the, the miracles that Moses uh, conducts in the Exodus in Egypt. Whatever this sign is, other people will see it and, and be warned to leave Cain alone. Now, I want to chase this a little bit because I find it very ironic. From the time of the early Syriac Christians to the Eastern Orthodox Church in the 5th and the 6th century, this mark of Cain has often been interpreted as black skin. The mark of Cain and the curse of Ham sometimes get conflated together. Later in American evangelicalism, um, evangelicals would use the mark of Cain and the curse of Ham to not only refer to black skin, but to use it to justify the enslavement of black people. The Southern Baptist Convention, when it formed to support slaveholding Christians, air quotes, used the same theory of the mark of Cain and the curse of Ham to justify its support of slavery. Now, I don't think this text refers to skin color at all. That appears to be an entirely extra-biblical interpretation. But here's, here's the irony. If it did refer to skin color, then black skin should have been interpreted as a sign of people to protect, not murder. That's the whole point of the sign here, is he's protecting Cain from other people killing him. But it must be said that when it comes to race and racial prejudice, prejudice white evangelicalism has twisted the scriptures in the most wicked way to control, exploit, and destroy black lives and the black body. It, that, that ain't popular, but it's true. Right now we're seeing the poisonous fruit of that heretical theology and wicked practice. Our, our blood flows in the street because of teaching like this. It has warmed its way into the fabric and the habits of the culture. 
Ask yourself, beloved, what does it do to the psyche of a people and a culture to tell themselves for 300 years because of a people's skin color, they have the right to own them and work them and exploit them, sometimes in the most vile ways? What does it do to the psyche of a people and a culture? What does it do to the psyche and the people of a culture when they're told, as one infamous Supreme Court justice wrote in the Dred Scott decision, the black man has no rights that the white man is obligated to respect? When that's the highest law of the land, and the entire criminal justice system is is organized to enforce that law, what does it do to the heart of a man? What what does Mark of Cain nonsense lead to? Not to the right of life, not to the right of liberty, not to the right of the pursuit of happiness, not, not to certain inalienable rights endowed by our creator. What does that do to a people? It, it, it leads them over centuries to indifference and unaccountable attitudes and self-pity even in the face of injustice committed against black people. That's why we've got tons of professing evangelicals denying that racism exists, denying that systemic racism and injustice exists. That's why we've got so many professing Christians, evangelical Christians, who who pity themselves in the midst of conversations about blood flowing in the streets. That's why fragile white people can't bear to have racism pointed out or or want to talk about things in ways that leave them feeling comfortable. In short, beloved, this is a kind of false teaching spread about for centuries and never fully corrected. And it leads to what we're seeing today. We are where we are because this country... And white evangelical Christians have twisted the theology of the body so that they can own black bodies. And that blood flows in the street crying up to God. And God answers to strike the conscience. And God answers to announce his judgment. And we better pray that God would show us mercy as he does here with Cain. It's a remarkable statement of restraint. He will not let Cain be punished beyond the limits that he has set. That's important. God's judgment will not be shortened or extended by men. It will be exactly as God determines. God will be merciful even when applying justice. Now, two applications of that. Number one, this is why African Americans have to be careful We're not all justice and no mercy Christians. This is why we've got to be careful that we're not in our calls for justice simply trying to exact vengeance. This is why we've got to be careful that in our conversations about these things, even if we tell the naked, raw truth as we understand it, we cannot be doing that out of a desire to inflict more punishment than God himself has established. God has joined together both justice and mercy, and he is using those perfect attributes to bring about both things. And we've got to be justice and mercy Christians. And we've got to learn to detect 
when our flesh, as black people, is pushing us into sinful responses, responses that would deny mercy, responses that would not extend grace, responses that would not actually affirm the, the growth of others, would, would not make room for others to, as we have had made room, room made for us by God, to, to stumble, to grow, to get back up, to keep going. It's no reflection to the glory of God if we are less merciful than God. It's no reflection to the glory of God if, if we are always bringing a hammer and a sword to beat people down and not ever extending the kind of kindness that treats them better than their sins deserve or punishes them less than their sins deserve. That's what God is like, and we're not being God if we're not like that. We're not being like God if we're not like that. And that's the first thing to see. God's justice and his mercy goes together and it ought to go together in his people. Now, here's the other thing to understand. We have to be careful to keep in mind that justice and mercy meet in Jesus Christ on the cross. So, so, so these two verses here really are the, the logic of the gospel in this Old Testament story about Cain and Abel. God is both, yes, judging Cain, but he's also holding out mercy to Cain. He's correcting Cain, but he's also rescuing Cain from the, from the devastation of other people, from the murder of other people. This is what God does in the cross. He, he punishes our sin in Jesus Christ, and at the same time, he is merciful to us through that sacrifice of his son on the cross for us. So we are people who should have been judged without mercy. So we are people who have had our sins judged in Christ and given infinite mercy through the shedding, notice, of his blood. See, blood still runs in the street. Not just the blood of boys and girls, men and women killed unjustly, but the blood of the Son of God still runs in the street and it still saves. Now, whenever we engage these conversations, we got to engage it like people who know that justice and mercy meet on the cross in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It might be that you've been listening to this sermon and you've been pricked in some way and felt guilty in some way. And God has been pursuing you by his spirit. And you're made aware of his justice because if you die in your sin, you will face him as your judge. And the lake of fire will be your eternity. But there is mercy for sinners in Jesus Christ the righteous. We turn from our sins, put our faith in him who was crucified for us and resurrected. We don't receive God's wrath we receive God's love. God is not indifferent to us. God is interested in us. God comes to us, rescues us, make us his sons and daughters, and we live in his forgiveness and love and his kingdom forever. That's the offer that God makes to you. Be wise and accepted. Trust in Jesus as your Savior to rescue you from all that we see of Cain's sin, because Cain's sin is, let's be honest, we're capable of it all and we've done it all. But Christ has brought us mercy. Believe in him and you shall live. ARC, I want to close this with a few applications for us real quickly. I said a moment ago there are some issues that make you have to draw some lines. And as a church, I think we need to draw some lines pretty clearly right now, just so we're clear about who we are, and we're clear about what God has called us to do in the world. I want to I make four quick points here. 
to close. Number one, I want to make it very clear that our mission as a church is to reach Southeast D.C. Now, what I want you to understand that to mean is our mission is to reach the African-American community of Southeast D.C. There are a whole bunch of people here, black bodies, black skin, made in God's image, that frankly will not be reached with the gospel um, by a lot of other people because they think this is the Jericho Road. And they would rather travel around this area, at least until it's gentrified. But we're not here to be gentrifiers. We're here to be missionaries. And we're here to reach the community that's already here, uh, which is predominantly African-American. We'll see every neighbor come to Christ, but I want us to be crystal clear that we have a particular calling as a congregation to try and reach the 92% uh, of African-Americans who are in this community. That specificity must inform our mission and our sensibilities as a congregation if we're going to be successful at that mission. Second thing, given that mission, I want to make it unequivocally clear that we believe in the dignity of black life. We believe in the non-negotiableness of preserving and protecting black life. And, and we believe the injustice of the recent events that have, that have sparked these protests require us to respond then in defense of black life and in, in, in promotion of the flourishing of black life. Our solidarity on these issues uh, must be expressed not just in terms of our Christian unity. That's important. We never denigrate our Christian unity. Christ has made us one new man. But the issues that we're facing in this country right now are not issues that are directed at Christians. When we're talking about systemic injustice, we are ordinarily talking about issues that are expressed at a particular ethnic people, in this case, black people. So our solidarity must be with not just black Christians, but with black people as a people. Because that's where the injustice, historically and contemporaneously, has been aimed. Now, we're not the only ones who suffer injustice. Uh, take for a moment, uh, take for uh, example, a little while ago, we sent a letter to the congregation in support of uh, the Asian community because we have seen in the last year, in the last several months since COVID-19, we've seen an uptick in anti-Asian racism. Well, you're not really caring about justice if you only care about justice that affects your people. That's just prejudice by another name. So, so, so when the prejudice is aimed at Asian people without regard to whether they're Christians, without regard to um, which country uh, in Asia they, or which people group in Asia they may be descended from, whether they're Chinese or Korean or whatever, uh, when, when the racism is indiscriminate, aimed at Asian people, we need, as people of justice, to be standing indiscriminately with Asian people as a people in protection of their life. That's what solidarity requires. We need to get clear on that. Because just lamenting for each other as Christians is not the same thing as entering into the sort of injustice that's affecting people as people groups. We want to be clear. Black lives matter. And we're going to express solidarity with that because black lives matter. Number three, I want to make it really clear that in a situation like the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, we plan to center in our conversations, and in our ministry, and our actions, we plan to center the needs, concerns, sensibilities 
of black people. That doesn't mean that people with other perspectives don't count. Doesn't mean we don't need to hear those perspectives. Doesn't mean that there are not things from those perspectives that should be shaping our perspective. All that's true. People do count. People have other perspectives. Those perspectives should be helping to shape our perspective. But what gets centered when we're talking about the destruction of black life and blood flowing in the streets, what gets centered is the sensibilities, needs, concerns of black people, the people affected. Right? So we we can no longer have conversations where um, the center is moved off of Jesus and off of the people made in God's image who are being affected. It cannot be moved by whataboutism. It it can't be moved by deflections to other things. It cannot be moved by claims of of reverse racism or or whatever the case may be. All of these ways of, of evading the conversation, we're done with that. We're done with that. We'll be very clear about that. When we're talking about blood flowing in the streets, that's not the time to change the subject. We we'll keep it focused. Number four. I want us to know that uh, the pastors want us to know that when the when the quarantine is up, Lord willing, we 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 hope and trust the quarantine is over before Jesus comes. If if it is, when the quarantine is up, we're going to do some things that we should have done five years ago. Things that we should have done at the launch of this church that would make us ready for these conversations and skilled in having them. For example, I can't require this. We wish we could, so we, but we're going to strongly encourage it that all of us as a membership work through material like Latasha Morrison's Be the Bridge. That, that our white brothers and sisters work through the, the curriculum that, that helps you sort of get up to speed on some of these conversations that are new to you and, and, and even challenges some of your perspective. Uh, that, that's just helpful pre-work that needs to happen. And then all of us, black, brown, yellow, what have you, uh, that we then work together to, to build relationships that are tough enough to endure the stress of the kinds of things we're seeing in the culture. Because they come into the church and they disrupt the unity of the church. We have experienced that. The church world has experienced that. We need to do some constructive pastoral work to head that off and to be the people of God that we are called to be. So that's something we're going to be pushing. Uh, We're going to be pushing every member to be assigned to a block group and every block group to be assigned to blocks in the neighborhood so that we create a structure for everybody to get part of their witness and their Christian life into the community. It's just, this is where our mission is. So this is where we need to be, whether we live here full time or whether it's through the block group or some other means, we're going to be renewing our effort um, in getting everybody plugged into this mission. Uh, And and then we, we want to sort of longer term, we want to begin to organize we began to talk about this a little bit in the Bless the Block series when we were sort of, I was beginning to lay out sort of different kinds of groups to pursue the priorities that were there in Jeremiah 29. We've, we've gotten interrupted on that series, but I don't want you to lose this idea because here's the thing. When, when these things erupt every few years as they seem to, here's what happens. Nothing has happened between the intervening years. We've not gotten more skilled. We've not gotten more educated. We've not deepened our relationships. So every time these things happen, we have the same conversation. And every time these things happen, we think that the work is the conversation. Beloved, we've got to get past one-on-one conversations. We've got to get past introductory-level conversations. 
And the way to do that is to organize ourselves in the in-between time so that we have a kind of flexibility and responsiveness that's going on all along and that's heightened when we have these kinds of spikes in the culture. So we're going to sort of do some work to organize. I praise God for the march that we're about to have in a, in a couple of hours. The, the folks who put that together uh, have, have rolled up their sleeves and, and, and they've sort of created an opportunity for us uh, through that organization, through that organizing, to make our voices heard. Well, that needs to be an ongoing part of our life as a church and our witness in the community. So we're going to, with God's help, do some things differently. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks and months ahead. You guys have been patient with your attention. Let me, let me just sort of conclude for us. We've got a lot of work ahead of us. We've got to go evangelize. We've got to make disciples. Some of us have got to unlearn some things that we have learned in other places. Some of us have got to learn some new things. We've all got to go and gather lessons that have been neglected from, from other people groups and other parts of the Christian church, whether that's the black church, the Korean church, or Hispanic church, the evangelical church. We've all got stuff to contribute, and we need to contribute it. And we need to be sifted until we're made more and more in the image and likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've got to put feet to our faith in the cause of righteousness and justice and the advance of the kingdom for that's what we're really talking about and we got to be clear on some things i i know god loves the black body this is i know he loves every other body i know god hears the cry of black blood i know god does justice all that's left beloved to figure out is whether or not we are like our god whether or not we love this embodied life, whether or not we hear the blood when it cries from the ground, whether or not we do justice the way God would have us do justice in the name of Christ and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, help us to be all that you have called us to be. Without you, we can do nothing. Take this sermon and sift it even now, Lord. Help the hearer to chew the fish and spit out the bones. Help them, O oh Lord, to uh, repent of any evasion of your conviction and your con confrontation. Let them just sit with you. Let me just sit with you. Let us gather together what we need to gather in our hearts and let us go from this place, transform for the glory of Christ and the cause of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.